The entire western coast of the state of California is bordered by the largest and the deepest of the planet's oceans, the Pacific Ocean. This ocean is massive. It extends from the Arctic in the north to the Antarctic in the south, and Asia and Australia in the west, and North and South America in the east. At a staggering 63,800,000 square miles, or 165,250,000 square kilometers in area, it is the largest division of the world ocean, making up approximately 46% of the Earth's water surface and about one-third of its total surface area. One-third of the entire surface of the Earth is the Pacific Ocean. It is larger than all of the land on the planet combined. The equator subdivides it into the North Pacific Ocean and the South Pacific Ocean. Its average depth is 14,040 feet or 4,280 meters. And the Mariana Trench in the Western North Pacific is the deepest point in the world, reaching a depth of 35,797 feet or 10,911 meters. Though the people of Asia and Oceania have traveled the Pacific Ocean since prehistoric times, the Eastern Pacific was first sighted by Europeans in the early 16th century when Spanish explorer Vasco Nunez de Baboa crossed the Isthmus of Panama in 1513 and discovered what he called the Great Southern Sea, which he named Mar del Sur. The ocean's current name was coined by Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan during the Spanish circumnavigation of the world in 1521 as he encountered favorable winds upon reaching the ocean. He called it Mar Pacifico, which means peaceful sea both in Portuguese and Spanish. The Pacific Ocean may have derived its name from being a peaceful body of water, but if you live in or near a beach community like I do, then you have seen the many faces of the ocean. It is beautiful and vast. Most of the times the Pacific Ocean, at least where I'm at, it is quite peaceful. Sometimes there are storms. The waves can come crashing into shore quite fierce at times. But like Magellan said, it is Mar Pacifico. The ocean can be inhospitable. It can be frightening. It can seemingly swallow things whole, vessels, ships, and planes. Can just be gone, vanished into the ocean. It can make people vanish, seemingly into thin air too. When something goes wrong in, on, or above the ocean, things can escalate alarmingly quickly, and the disasters that ensue can be devastating. In the 20th century, thousands upon thousands of people have lost their lives in maritime disasters. 
It is likely as I say that, that the RMS Titanic sinking of 1912 quickly comes to mind, as it is probably the most famed of ocean disasters. But in actuality, in terms of numbers of lives lost, the sinking of the Titanic actually ranks fourth on the list, with 1,517 deaths that night the ocean liner struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic and sunk. Canada placed third with its Halifax explosion on December 6, 1917, when a fully laden French munitions ship, the Mont Blanc, collided with the Norwegian ship, Emo, in the narrows parts of Halifax Harbor, killing approximately 2,000 and injuring about 9,000 people on the shore and in Halifax. To this day, it remains the largest accidental explosion of conventional weapons. And in second place, China's sinking of the Kianga, a passenger steamship packed beyond capacity with refugees fleeing the People's Liberation Army on December 4, 1948. The suspected cause of the explosion was the steamship hitting a mine left by the Imperial Japanese Navy in World War II. The exact death toll is unknown, however, the estimates are between 2,750 and 3,920. And the worst maritime disaster of the 20th century goes to the Philippines with the sinking of the Donna Paz on December 20th, 1987. It was a ferry bound for Manila with, again, more than its capacity of unlisted passengers. It collided with the oil tanker, the empty vector, in the Tablas Strait. The oil tanker exploded, erupting into flames, igniting the waters which were also shark-infested. An estimated 4,386 people lost their lives, with only 24 survivors. But these stories, these collisions with vessels or in the case of the Kiangya, with an unseen underwater mine, these are disastrous accidents. But I kind of wanted to highlight some of the worst things that could possibly happen to people in the ocean. I have listened to a number of podcasts tell the stories of people who have gone missing, presumably overboard on a cruise, These stories are absolutely fascinating. Don't worry, this isn't a cruise ship disappearance story. I just can't imagine being on some fabulous cruise and somebody or even one of my travel companions vanishing off of the ship. It's terrifying to think about someone just wiped off the face of the earth, swallowed up by the sea. Since 2000, there have been approximately 200 cruise ship disappearances, with 23 of those happening in 2012 alone. Can you imagine 200 people in the last 17 years just poof, gone, just like that, somewhere in the ocean? It sends chills down my spine. Like I said, This isn't a tale 
about a cruise ship vanishing. And it's not going to be a story about an accident on the water. It's not about anyone who'd gone out for a day sailing or a recreational activity and never came back. This isn't about anyone getting lost at sea in turbulent waters or a dramatic shift in the weather conditions. This is worse. Today, I'm going to take you on a detour to the exquisite Southern California community of Newport Beach, where one young man who hatched a plan so malicious, so cruel, one would be hard pressed to find a story with a criminal so cold-blooded as he. This man used the limitlessness of the Pacific Ocean as his weapon of choice when he carried out his murderous plan. In today's episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Lost at Sea. Tom and Jackie Hawks, by all accounts, were a vivacious, adventurous, beloved couple hailing from Prescott, Arizona. The couple, preparing to enter into their retirement years, had purchased a 55-foot yacht in 2000 and named it the Well-Deserved. Tom, a former probation officer, retired in 2001, so the couple, having invested well over the years, decided to sell their home in Arizona and move on to the yacht permanently and moored the well-deserved in Long Beach, California. The yacht, with two decks, two bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a galley, it was more than enough to live, sail, and enjoy the retirement the couple very much deserved. Making the yacht all their own, Tom added wooden racks for a kayak and a windsurfer. He equipped the yacht with the latest electronics, a generator, and a 400-gallon-a-day desalination system so the two of them could stay at sea for months at a time. Tom was amazing at working with his hands. Tom met Jackie who would become his second wife at a chili cook-off in 1986. The couple immediately hit it off. They were both fitness enthusiasts. Tom worked out at least an hour and a half every day, and Jackie went to the gym religiously as well. Tom was an Arizona arm wrestling champion, and he competed in bodybuilding competitions into his early 50s. This man was in tremendously great shape. Jackie grew up in Mentor, Ohio, and moved to Arizona after high school. In 1985, she was on the back of her first husband's Harley-Davidson when a car pulled out of a side street and crashed into them, killing her husband instantly. The accident not only left Jackie barely clinging to life, it left her unable to ever have children on her own which makes what happens later on in this tale even more sad to tell. Three years after meeting, the couple got married. His two boys, Ryan and Matt, lived with them most of the time, and they even called her mom. Jackie was a very much welcomed 
and loved addition to the Hawks family. They were very, very close. And Tom, well, he absolutely adored Jackie. She was the world to him. A friend of the couple said in an interview that Tom would walk on water for her, that they'd never experienced a couple that much in love, that compatible together. Ever since Tom was a child, boating had been a passion of his. Growing up on a family ranch in Chino, his family would frequently take their trawler to Catalina Island, and this enthusiasm for boating carried on throughout Tom's life. He always had a powerboat, and he shared his passion for boating with his boys, and eventually with his second wife, Jackie. Pretty much every weekend and every vacation was on a boat for the Hawks family. All the while, the Hawks saved and saved to be able to someday acquire a yacht like the well-deserved, as it was aptly named when they were finally able to purchase her. The couple spent years going to boat shows and researching just the right kind of vessel that would fit their dreams of spending their retirement days sailing around Mexico. When they finally purchased the well-deserved, it was truly the culmination of everything the couple had been working towards for so many years. It was truly a well-deserved, a very much deserved dream come true for Jackie and Tom. The couple sold their Arizona home and promptly moved into the well-deserved. They took it on short trips and learned the ins and outs of the yacht while spending approximately $50,000 on improvements and upgrades. By October of 2002, Tom and Jackie were set. The couple were ready to answer the call to living on the ocean. They pulled their yacht out of Long Beach Harbor and set off for their adventure together, chasing their dreams to sail around the coast of Mexico. They cruised down the coast of Baja, California, and made their way towards Cabo San Lucas and into the Sea of Cortez, stopping all along the way in Baja as well as the mainland Mexico, all the while documenting all of their adventures on home video. I don't know about you guys, but this just about sounds like one of the most perfect ways to sail off into one's retirement years, doesn't it? Your work life is done, your children are raised, you've really got no place to be, nothing to be responsible for. You let go of your home on dry land and make the world your home to sail around in. Well, in very short order, there would be something that would draw Tom and Jackie Hawks back to dry land, but I will get into that a little bit later. In an interview Tom did in the December 2003 issue of Latitudes and Attitudes, a popular sailing magazine, he said that the sea was calling us and we couldn't wait any longer. Life is just too short to put things off and one cannot discover new oceans unless they have the courage to lose sight of the shore. 
I'm going to sidetrack on a footnote that is a small scandal in and of itself here real quick before we get back to Tom and Jackie. Now, like many, many times before in all the previous episodes, I put the disclaimer out there that I am by no means an expert on fill in the blank. And while this time it's sailing, boating, and all things related to this subject. Therefore, I end up having to Google things and I needed to Google latitudes and attitudes. And I ended up uncovering a side crime in all of this. This sailing lifestyle magazine was founded in 1996 by a Redondo Beach, California resident, Bob Bitchin. And that's how it's spelled, B-I-T-C-H-I-N. So it's just not me making fun of it. So Bob Bitchin launched this magazine and a TV series by the same name, along with his wife, Jody Bitchin. Apparently, in 2012, their magazine shuttered its doors suddenly and unexpectedly, shocking staff and boating enthusiasts alike. The Bitchins had sold their company, Latitudes and Attitudes, Seafaring International, to one Dennis D.J. Doran, CEO of Sextant Publishing. Bob Bitchin said the $1 million sale to Doran and his partner, Joe Morales, included the company's TV and radio ventures, exotic boat charters, boat show operations, and its Living Aboard magazine. Part of the deal was that Bob and Jody were to act as paid consultants for three years and that all the staff would remain in place. DJ Doran announced ambitious plans for the company, updating the magazine, launching a tablet and e-reader applications, expanding the television operations, and developing new lines of products for the store. None of this happened. Six months after the sale, a staffer went to open the office in King Harbor, Redondo Beach, only to find a notice on the door saying, Offices closed until further notice. The locks had been changed, and the staff, the few that were left after several layoffs, were suddenly unemployed as well. Bob later discovered that the most recent issue of Latitudes and Attitudes had never even gone to print, despite the fact that advertisers had been billed. Company credit cards had all been abruptly canceled, bills were unpaid, and Bob and Jody found themselves on the brink of bankruptcy. Not only were the couple out the $1 million for the sale of the magazine, but they were on the hook for almost half a million dollars more in debt. This tale has somewhat of a happy ending, though, mainly due to the help of friends who pitched in financially and emotionally. Bob and Jody were able to pick themselves up and return to doing the work that they love, including attending boat shows, holding cruising parties, and working as consultants for Cruising Outpost, an online and quarterly magazine. Cruising Outpost also employs many of their former staff members as well. Okay, so back to Tom and Jackie. For the next one and a half years, they were out on the ocean emailing friends and family about all of their adventures on the well-deserved. Diving for clams and scallops, swimming with the whale sharks, 
experiencing Christmas with the Mexican family they befriended on their travels. One of their emails read, We are so happy that we are finally in the Sea of Cortez. This is what we have been waiting for. The weather is wonderful. The sea is like a lake. And we just had a whale surface beside us. Wow. Wow, indeed. As much as I would have liked to have thought I would have been excited for Tom and Jackie, part of me thinks I'd be so jealous if they were my friends and I was getting emails from them like that, right? Yeah, this story can give you some goals. So, remember I told you that there would be something that would draw Tom and Jackie back onto dry land? Well, that something would come in the form of the news that the couple were going to become first-time grandparents. Their youngest son was expecting his first child with his wife, and Tom and Jackie could not be more excited about the news. Jackie, it seemed, was especially thrilled at the prospect of becoming a grandmother. As I had mentioned earlier, an accident rendered her unable to bear children of her own. She had been waiting her whole life for this. This would be the very first chance she would ever have to have a newborn in her life, and she did not want to miss a moment of it. This meant that Tom and Jackie, and the well-deserved, would have to sadly part ways. And if you thought for a moment that Jackie would get any kind of pushback from Tom, you'd be mistaken. Tom would do anything to make Jackie happy. He understood how important it was to her to be close to their new grandchild. So it was really a no-brainer for him. He was absolutely on board, pun intended. The new plan was to sell the well-deserved and to buy a smaller boat, possibly some land in Mexico and a place in Arizona to be close to the new baby. Newport Beach, California is a seaside community in Orange County. It is often described as having a Mediterranean-like feel to it weather-wise, but it does not receive enough precipitation to qualify as a true Mediterranean climate. Like many coastal cities in Los Angeles and Orange counties, Newport Beach typically has very mild temperature variations compared to the inland cities, even a few miles in away from the coast. The Pacific Ocean contributes greatly to the moderation of Newport Beach's mild climate by warming temperatures in the winter and cooling in the summer. So location and great weather has Newport Beach ranking eighth highest in the housing market in the United States. Newport Harbor is the largest recreational boat harbor on the west coast of the United States and is an extremely popular destination for all boating activities, including sailing, fishing, rowing, kayaking, and paddleboarding. The annual Newport Christmas Boat Parade dates back to 1908, and the New York Times has named it one of the top 10 holiday happenings in the nation. You will hear a little bit more about this Christmas Boat Parade later on in this story. Competitive sailing 
rowing, and paddling events occur almost every weekend and every day during the summer. The annual Newport to Ensenada International Yacht Race is the largest sailboat race in the world. A harbor tour features celebrity homes and other waterfront points of interest. Notable residents, both former and current, include Humphrey Bogart, George Burns, Nicholas Cage, Dean Kuntz, Heather Locklear, Chuck Norris, Gwen Stefani, Emma Stone, Shirley Temple, and John Wayne. Tom and Jackie, along with the well-deserved, arrived in Newport Harbor on June 23, 2004. They were getting ready to place their beloved yacht on the market. Skylar Julius de Leon was born John Julius Jacobson Jr. on August 12, 1979 in Sun Valley, California, a neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles County. De Leon's parents had split up by the time he was five years old. And by the time he was nine, his father was sentenced to three years in federal prison for selling cocaine. While his father was serving his prison sentence, De Leon lived with his stepmother. According to relatives, his biological mother basically had very little, if anything, to do with his life. A small, somewhat shining moment of De Leon's youth came when he was 14 by way of a very small, uncredited, walk-on, no-lines bit role on one episode of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers TV show entitled Second Chance in 1993. However, De Leon's acting career faltered as he struggled with remembering lines. So when he was 20, he joined the United States Marine Corps. But... Fifteen days later, he went on an unauthorized absence, which means he abandoned his duty without permission or a pass, but with the intentions of returning, whereas desertion is the abandonment of duty without intentions of ever returning. He was later given an other than honorable discharge, or OTH, which means his departure was as a result of conduct and performance unbecoming of all military members. Those who are given an OTH discharge are barred from ever re-enlisting into any component of the armed forces, including the reserves and the National Guard. So, if De Leon had any real dreams of being in the military, they were gone forever. Skylar DeLeon, like Tom Hawks, was a man who had big dreams. More accurately, he was a little man who had big dreams. Unlike Tom, his dreams went nowhere. He was the type of person who never really finished anything he started. He had all those dreams, but all of them would forever be out of his reach. With his dreams of being an actor in the military dashed, 
he would toss around some other ideas as to what to do with his life. He had an idea that he would start a business cleaning boat holes or possibly even buying a boat so he could teach scuba diving or use it as a charter for fishing trips. He even floated the idea of going to nursing school. None of these ventures ever came to fruition. However, he would eventually come to decide that he wanted to get his hands on a boat. How he was going to do it remained to be seen. At some point, DeLeon met and married his wife, Jennifer, and they would go on to have two children in short order. By November of 2004, the couple were struggling, living in her parents' converted garage with their baby while she was pregnant with their second child. Jennifer would go on to play a pivotal role a little bit later on in this story. A couple of years before the Hawks would come to cross paths with the De Leons, Skylar De Leon was finding it difficult to stay out of trouble. While Tom and Jackie were enjoying the fruits of their labor, sailing away their retirements off the coast of Mexico on the well-deserved, De Leon had landed a job as an appraisal contact at a mortgage lender, Ditec. However, on December 9, 2002, he was arrested with two other Ditec employees burglarizing the Anaheim, California home of a co-worker. He was armed with a loaded gun and plastic handcuffs. De Leon pleaded guilty and was sentenced to one year in jail and three years probation and ordered to pay $200 in restitution. A judge had allowed De Leon to serve his time in a work release program at Seal Beach City Jail in which De Leon was allowed to hold a job during the day and return to the jail at night. De Leon paid $70 a day for the program, or approximately $2,000 a month. It's unclear how De Leon managed to pay to be in this work program. While De Leon was serving his time in Seal Beach, he befriended a man by the name of John Peter Jarvie, known by his family as JP. He was a licensed pilot and a jewelry maker by trade. However, through the better part of his life, J.P. struggled with drug addiction, peppered with periods of sobriety. As an adult, he suffered some back issues, which required surgeries, and this resulted in addiction to painkillers. In the years J.P. was able to remain drug-free, he was successful. He became a pilot and flew small planes around the country. He became a popular announcer for a traveling air show known as Team America. He also learned how to make custom jewelry and found moderate success in that venture. He was the kind of person who made friends easily, so when he found himself in trouble again with a counterfeiting conviction, he was remanded to custody for five months at the Seal Beach City Jail. He and De Leon became fast friends. On December 26, 2003, JP told his mom that he was going down to Mexico for a no-lose business deal. He subsequently went to the bank and cashed two checks in the amount of $25,000 each. The next day, De Leon 
his cousin Michael Lewis, and JP drove down to Mexico for this so-called no-lose business deal. The day after that, JP's body was found near Ensenada. He died the day after his 45th birthday on a busy Mexican highway that emptied into the border town crossing at Tecate. His throat had been slit from ear to ear, and he slowly bled to death in the sagebrush, a few feet from a road where thousands of people were driving into the United States. Later on that same day, De Leon paid $18,000 in $100 bills to a Costa Mesa, California boatyard to refit his 26-foot cabin cruiser, deposited about $21,000 in cash into a bank account, and bought a $2,200 wedding band for his wife. De Leon returned late that night to the Seal Beach Jail, but he was allowed in by jailer Alonzo Machain, a 21-year-old from Pico Rivera, California. Remember Machain's name. He will also become an integral part of this story. JP's murder will grow cold for now. A little footnote to the dealings with the boatyard. The owner of the place ended up having to file a lawsuit against De Leon for a balance of $7,500 owed in addition to the $18,000 deposit he had paid up front for the work on his cabin cruiser. De Leon apparently went to the shop when it was closed on a Sunday in April of 2004, cut the lock, and took his boat without paying the balance. He racked up yet another criminal charge of grand theft. So, back to the well-deserved. When Tom and Jackie decided that they were going to sell the yacht, it was their hope that they would find a person who would love and care for it as much as they had. The asking price was a little bit under $500,000. And they were a frugal couple, so they decided they were going to try to sell the boat without a broker. According to their youngest son, they were the kind of people who did everything for themselves, with the exception of accounting and taxes. On November 12th, Tom and Jackie took some friends to Catalina Island and talked about the impending sale of the boat. Tom told Brian Gray, a former boss from the probation department, about a former child actor who was about to buy the yacht. Tom and Jackie were initially dubious of the man and his wife and how such a young couple were going to be able to afford the steep sale price of the well-deserved. They were convinced, though, by the story spun about being a child star and having been able to invest well and that money was not an issue for the couple. They intended to pay for the yacht in cash in full. Tom and Jackie were easy to convince, apparently, once he showed up with his lovely wife, Jennifer, who was very visibly pregnant at the time, and their little toddler, with whom Jackie was completely enamored, as they were two new grandparents themselves to an infant baby boy. 
They put on quite the show for Tom and Jackie. Quite the show. On November 15th, Tom spoke to friend Carter Ford by phone as he and Jackie waited for DeLeon to come aboard for the final test drive. Tom told Carter that he wanted to make sure that the new owner knew how to operate everything before the sale was finalized. Carter Ford would say later in an interview that, in Tom's eyes, this nice kid was buying the boat. A little while later, Jackie called Carter and left a voicemail and said, we're out at sea. That would be the last time anyone would ever hear from Tom or Jackie again. By the next day, the well-deserved was back in Newport Harbor. DeLeon began to proudly tell friends and family about the boat he had bought. He emailed a picture of the well-deserved to a relative and said that he could not wait to ride it in Newport Harbor's annual Christmas boat parade, which was coming up soon. A few more days passed and it had been a week. Tom and Jackie's family had not heard from them and they were beginning to become concerned. It was very unusual for them to not be in touch with anyone for more than a day or so. As a matter of fact, Tom and Jackie called their boys just about once a day, at least. So not to hear from either of them for a week, red flags started going up right away. Nobody really knew what to think. They were definitely free spirits. They loved to be on the water. They spent so much time perusing around Mexico. Maybe they were just having the time of their lives and were just wanting to be off the grid with each other. But still, it was way out of character for them. Free spirits or not. It simply wasn't like them. Thanksgiving arrived and the family struggled through it as best they could, trying to make the holiday feel as normal as they could, but it just wasn't right. It wasn't going to be normal without Tom and Jackie. Also, on November 26th, there had been an attempt to access Tom and Jackie's bank account in Mexico. But what did all of this mean? Nobody could have really known at the time, but could it have been the couple? Perhaps. Finally, Tom's brother decided to go and take a look at the yacht, which was still in the harbor. A former chief of police for San Clemente, California, Tom's brother knew at first glance that several things were just not right with the well-deserved. Things were out of place in ways that would be unacceptable to Tom. The control panel cover was askew, and Tom would have never left the instrument panels exposed to the salty air. The engine was left in the water instead of raised, 
which is also something Tom would have never done. He had a number of custom-made items that were still on the yacht that he would have never left behind if he had sold it, including a custom surfboard that was a retirement gift and custom wetsuits for each of them, Tom and Jackie. Tom's brother immediately contacted Newport Beach Police. Once the police became involved and saw that there had been no activity on their bank accounts except for that one attempt, nor any activity on their phones, and the boat had been docked now for more than two weeks with the couple nowhere to be found, a missing persons report was immediately filed for the couple. Also missing was Tom and Jackie's silver Honda CRV. Because the vehicle hadn't been found yet, the missing couple's family was still holding out hope that maybe they just took off on a road trip and just didn't feel the need to be in touch for a bit. As unlikely as they felt that this would be the case, that would be the hope that they were going to hang on to for the time being. It did not take very long for the police investigation based on what Tom and Jackie had told their friends prior to leaving for that last trip with the prospective buyer and cell phone records, for them to be led in the direction of Skylar de Leon as someone that they wanted to speak to about the couple's disappearance. Newport Beach police quickly found and placed a surveillance on de Leon and his wife. They discovered the couple, oddly enough, were volunteers at a small church in Long Beach. They saw the two working in the church, volunteering, assisting with cleaning up, pushing an infant around in a stroller. Seeing all of this, police were suddenly starting to feel like maybe this wasn't the right lead. Like, how could this possibly be the two people that made Tom and Jackie vanish off the face of the planet. Could it be them? They needed to question the couple regardless, and they were quite friendly with police, welcoming, warm, and very relaxed. Police again were thinking that maybe this whole thing was a legitimate purchase, and they needed to let this lead go and move on. Cool as cucumbers, the De Leons admitted to investigators that they did indeed purchase the well-deserved from Tom and Jackie, and they did so with cash, even providing investigators a bill of sale. De Leon also had a notarized document signed by Tom and Jackie giving De Leon power of attorney. Why in the world would they do something like that, you ask? Well, Police asked too. It seems that De Leon had an answer to every question and at every turn. He told investigators that Tom and Jackie were interested in buying property in Mexico and that he had dual citizenship and that he could broker a better deal for them if he were to handle the transaction on their behalf. Nobody was buying this story. The couple also told police that They have no clue as to the whereabouts of the missing couple. 
They were apparently told by Tom and Jackie that their intentions were to drive around aimlessly in Mexico as far as De Leon knew. So on November 29th, De Leon ended up going down to the police department for a videotaped interrogation. He recounted the transaction with Tom, indicating that Tom was happy about the sale, that they were going to exchange the money from the trunks of their cars, and he said that Tom was excited. He didn't want to go any place more private or out of sight, and that he just wanted to get this transaction done and get on with it. Of course, police are suspicious of the money. The $455,000 in cash that he claimed to have handed over to Tom and Jackie for the yacht? I mean, who has that kind of money? In cash. At that point, I'm certain DeLeon knew that the police were probably not going to buy his child star story the same way that Tom and Jackie did. So he decided to tell a more believable story, but one likely to get him into a certain amount of trouble, which seemed to be a sacrifice De Leon was going to be willing to make to avoid any further suspicion being directed towards him regarding Tom and Jackie's disappearance. He told police that he acquired the money to purchase the boat through drug and money laundering schemes based in Mexico, implicating himself in even more criminal charges, which seemed like an odd move to the police. He would go on in the interrogation to deny any knowledge of the whereabouts of Tom and Jackie, insisting he had nothing to do with their disappearance. During the course of this interrogation, he would also name Alonzo Machain, the Seal Beach City Jail Guard I spoke about earlier, as a witness to the purchase, the exchange of the money, and the signing of the documents. De Leon would also tell police that the reason why he bought the boat was to continue his drug and money laundering schemes in Mexico and needed the boat for easy transportation back and forth without having to deal with the border crossing. As police dug deeper into De Leon's life, they came to find that he and his wife had absolutely no money and no income to speak of. Living in a converted garage, not even having any running water back there, De Leon, his wife, their baby, and another one on the way. As far as investigators were concerned, these two had no money they definitely had no money to give to Tom and Jackie for their boat. Even if they were laundering money, the kinds of money that they were claiming, there's no way living in these conditions that that was anything close to the truth. They knew, based on information provided to police that Skylar was the prospective buyer of the boat, that he was the last person to have been seen with Tom and Jackie before they vanished. In addition, Investigators also came to learn about De Leon's criminal history and the fact that he was still, at the time, on parole for the burglary conviction. So, needless to say, De Leon easily made his way to the top of the suspect list. But 
There were two questions that desperately needed to be answered. Where was the Honda CRV? And more importantly, where were Tom and Jackie Hawks? Until police could uncover more evidence, they were not going to be able to charge DeLeon with anything related to Tom and Jackie's mysterious disappearance. On December 15th, there was a major break in this case. Tom and Jackie's SUV was found abandoned in Ensenada, Mexico. Whatever hopes the couple's family had that they were still alive somewhere, cruising around Mexico in their SUV, were dashed when their car was finally discovered. During a previous interview with De Leon, investigators asked him specifically if there would be any reason why they would find his fingerprints or DNA in the vehicle belonging to Tom and Jackie. And De Leon was emphatic that no, his DNA would not be anywhere in or on the couple's car. Well, that statement would certainly come back to bite him in the butt because forensic testing would subsequently reveal Despite efforts to wipe the vehicle clean of fingerprints and DNA or any other forensic evidence, De Leon's DNA was found to be on the heater knob of the car's climate control panel. Hey, it was November in Southern California. It does get cold here during that time of year, sometimes even into the low 60s if you can imagine that. It was very shortly after the discovery of the SUV in Mexico, that police decided that they could not risk having De Leon free on the streets any longer. They decided they were going to arrest him, but they weren't going to charge him with anything related to Tom and Jackie. They didn't have enough evidence for that just yet. They were going to go ahead and arrest him so that they could keep him on custody of charges of money laundering, a crime he had admitted to in a videotaped interrogation. Police had some peace of mind knowing this very dangerous man was behind bars while they did everything that they could to piece together what happened to Tom and Jackie. What role De Leon had in their disappearance? What, if any, did his wife know? And who else was in on this? With De Leon, Safely locked up in jail for now, police turned their sights towards the other players involved in this, namely De Leon's wife Jennifer and this Alonzo Machain character. What was the deal with that guy? He was a jailer at the Seal Beach City Jail. How did he play into this whole scheme? For De Leon, did having someone on the right side of the law supposedly going to make his story of purchasing this boat from Tom and Jackie come off as more legitimate? Perhaps. Who better than someone working as a guard in jail, right? Investigators needed to track down this Alonzo Machain and find out exactly what he had to say about all of this, what he knew about the disappearance of Tom and Jackie, and what, if anything, did he have to do with this? Well, 
It just so happened that Machane abruptly left his job at the Seal Beach City Jail and absconded to Mexico. You know, whenever we hear these stories about these characters fleeing prosecution by leaving the country, they more often than not always seem to want to return to the United States or need to return. I don't know if this is because they're homesick and they miss their families, or if they're out of money, or they think the heat has died down. Whatever the case, these people always try to make their way back across the borders, where if they would have just stayed put and never came back, they likely may have never been captured. But in March of 2005, four months since the disappearance of Tom and Jackie, Machane made his way back to the United States and he was quickly brought in for questioning about his knowledge of the case. Machane quickly rolled over on De Leon, offering up a full confession as to what the plan was regarding acquiring Tom and Jackie's yacht, his role in the whole thing, who all else was involved in the plan, and the whereabouts of the missing couple. It's because of Machane's full confession that we are privy to all of the sordid details that led to the vanishing of Tom and Jackie. And this, my listeners, is not going to be an easy story to tell. And it's not going to be easy to listen to. The details are so chilling. They may have you questioning not only how in the world anyone could conceive a plan so cold, how could anyone even carry out a plan like this? The details are so sad, and they're so scary. And if I could bring you guys any kind of solace in all of this, I hope there could be a tiny bit of comfort found in the fact that Tom and Jackie had each other in their final moments. De Leon wanted the well-deserved, and he intended to make it his, but he had no money. That, of course, wasn't going to stop him from getting his grubby little hands on Tom and Jackie's beautiful yacht. When De Leon answered the ad for the boat for sale, he brought Machane along with him for the initial contact with the sellers. Of course, being savvy and intelligent people, Tom and Jackie were immediately apprehensive of the two men. I mean, who were these guys? De Leon, this baby-faced, squeaky-voiced young man, and this even younger, almost kid, who were they trying to fool? Tom was interested in a cash transaction, and sizing up these two guys, there was no way they had the kinds of money Tom was looking to sell the well-deserved for. So, De Leon initially walked away, knowing that he needed a plan B. Enter into the plot, his beautiful pregnant wife Jennifer and their toddler, these were going to be De Leon's props in order to sell his story to Tom and Jackie, that he was a former child star, and that he made and continued to make money off of residuals and investments. 
this was his pretty pregnant wife and this was his cute kid and they really wanted to invest some of his child acting money into this beautiful yacht for his family. Needless to say, it did not take long for Tom and Jackie to fall for the young couple's story. De Leon had played his hand well. The unsuspecting Tom and Jackie, trusting to a fault, bought the lies, hook, line, and sinker. They shook hands on the deal, and Tom and Jackie considered the well-deserved sold to one Skylar De Leon, apparently independently wealthy former child star and his young wife, Jennifer. The sale of the well-deserved for Tom and Jackie would be a bittersweet event. They loved this boat with all of their hearts. It was everything they had ever dreamed of having. They had two good, wonderful years with her, having set sail up and down the coast of Mexico, but sometimes unexpected things happen in life. And the birth of their grandson was all it took for them to find themselves ready to part ways with their well-deserved. Having come to terms on an agreement for the sale with De Leon, Tom and Jackie took their yacht for one last go-round out to Catalina Island with some friends. They documented their final sale on home video. You can find footage of Tom and Jackie's home videos online. But to be fair, I have to warn you. When you see this happy couple, so happy, so in love with one another, it's almost guaranteed to break your heart into a million pieces, knowing how their love story is going to end. On November 15, 2004, Tom and Jackie were set to finalize the deal with De Leon. Papers were to be signed. Ownership was to be turned over to the young couple. And $455,000 in cash was to supposedly exchange hands. Tom, wanting to be certain that De Leon was familiar with the ins and outs on how to run the well-deserved, wanted to take him for one last sail around, just to show him. It was important to Tom that the yacht was going to be left in good hands. That day, De Leon showed up with Machain, and with another man whom De Leon introduced as his accountant, one John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yep, that was his name, JFK. But an accountant, he was not. JFK, I don't know if I like calling him that. Kennedy, eh, I guess both sound rather presidential, okay, so JFK, an ex-convict who'd been previously convicted of attempted murder, was an insane Crips gang member from Long Beach, California. Okay, so adding to the list of things that I don't know anything about, I know very, very little about street gangs. So I looked this one up. 
The insane crypts having formed around 1975 are the largest African-American criminal street gang located on the east side of Long Beach, California. They are primarily located in central Long Beach, originating on 21st Street and Lewis Avenue, spreading to surrounding blocks. The Insane Crips are known to wear Oakland Raiders apparel with black and gray as their primary colors. There are three segments of the gang. The Big Insane Crips, which mainly consists of original members, the Young Foundation crew, formed as kind of a spin-off of the original group, primarily composed of second generations. The third is known as Baby Insanes. Established in the early 1990s on 23rd Street in Long Beach, the members of Baby Insane Gang wear Cleveland Indians apparel, and they are known to sport red as their primary color. Okay. So back to JFK. Why in the world would De Leon want or need to bring along this very large gang member with a violent history, put him in a suit, and introduce him as his accountant? Well, because if you take one look at either De Leon or Machain, either one of those two, Mr. Tom Hawks could snap in half like a twig if he had to. JFK was recruited to be the muscle of this operation. He wasn't De Leon's first choice, however. He first tapped a gentleman by the name of Myron Sandora Gardner, a former Insane Crips gang member and ex-convict having served time for involuntary manslaughter. De Leon met Gardner at a job that they had after he was released from prison. Gardner wisely declined the invitation to participate in De Leon's crime, but never mind that, he knew a guy. He introduced De Leon to JFK, apparently someone who would be willing to go along because we all have that one friend who'll commit double murder, am I right? So, JFK, 43 years old at the time, was like a godfather in the insane crypts, so they say. He was over six feet tall and incredibly muscular. I'll post pictures of him on social media after this episode drops. And I would have to say, at first glance, and not to be judgy, but yeah, being judgy, he doesn't exactly strike me as the numbers crunching type of guy. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is likely to confuse this man for an accountant. But Tom and Jackie... Having been snowed by De Leon and his cute family, apparently were not wary of this accountant. They were prepared to move forward with the transaction and their final voyage. Little did the couple know that JFK, by the time he was 40 years old, had amassed a grand total of 21 arrests for charges ranging from battery, grand theft, drugs, and attempted murder. And he wasn't there to be an accountant. I'd be hard-pressed if the man ever knew how to do a math problem in his life. He was there to add criminal charge number 22 to his record. If Tom and Jackie had known, 
they would have probably walked away from this deal. And I wish they had. I wish they'd looked past De Leon and the fairy tale life of a story he spun and listened to the alarms that should have been going off in their heads. But they didn't. Their eyes were on the prize, and they had their sights set on beginning a brand new phase in their retirement. They were ready to let the well-deserved go and embrace their roles as grandma and grandpa. Tom, a former probation officer, a bodybuilder, an arm wrestling champion, he let his guard down, completely down. All he wanted was to make the love of his life happy. He wasn't looking at the imposing JFK as anything other than the accountant that De Leon introduced him as. He was there to be the strong arm when it would come down to the confrontation with Tom that De Leon was anticipating. I am so sad to think about this, how trusting this man was, how much he loved his family, and how this group of scumbags would take advantage of Tom's kindness. Ugh, I just hate them. JFK, thinking that he was going to be paid millions of dollars for this, McChain, too, was promised $1 million by De Leon as well for his help in this. All went along this fatal voyage on November 15th, pretending to be there to iron out the final details in the purchase of the yacht. The remainder of what happened on the well-deserved that day came from the confession of McChain. The details are a little difficult to listen to but lend to painting the portrait of just how truly evil Skylar de Leon really is. According to Machain's confession, de Leon explained to him that he had an opportunity for Machain to make a lot of money and that the plan was to kidnap this couple, to take them out to sea, toss them overboard, and make away with their boat and their money. His initial plan was to use tasers to overpower Tom and Jackie, as he knew he would be unlikely able to physically overpower Tom. McChain said that he himself purchased the handcuffs for the job. But at some point, De Leon realized that he would probably need a third person if he was going to be able to overpower Tom and control Jackie at the same time. So, enter JFK. The five of them, Tom, Jackie, De Leon, JFK, and Machain, drove the boat out of Newport Harbor under the pretense of Tom showing De Leon the intricate details and the inner workings of driving the yacht. At some point, JFK was to pretend to begin feeling seasick and needed to go down to use the restroom. Tom went down there with him to show him where it was at. And that's when JFK sucker-punched Tom, subdued him, and restrained him. Jackie suddenly became aware, hearing some of the commotion coming from down below, that something was wrong. She rushed towards where Machain was standing and peered down the stairs, asking what was going on. 
That's when Machane gained control over Jackie and proceeded to restrain her as well with the handcuffs he had purchased. He walked her down to the bedroom area where De Leon was and was ordered to grab some duct tape from the engine room and tape their eyes and their mouths, which he did. At this point, Skylar went up to program the GPS to take the well-deserved approximately two hours off the coast of California, out towards deeper waters. He told Machane to stay down in the sleeping quarters and keep his eyes on the couple, or as Machane put it in his confession, De Leon had him basically babysitting them while they were laying on the bed next to each other, facing away from one another, hands handcuffed behind their back. As they lay there, Jackie was crying. She had duct tape over her mouth, so she couldn't say anything. But I bet anything that knowing what was going to go on in those moments, she was thinking about her grandson. In a portion of Machane's confession, he said that while he was escorting her down the stairs that she told him that she needed to see her grandson again and begged him to let them go, that they could have everything. She just needed to be with her grandson. As they lay there, Machane could see that Tom's hands, despite being cuffed behind his back, were stroking Jackie's hands. In the worst moment of their lives, Tom's only concern is trying to help comfort his wife. <sighs> Next, De Leon had JFK bring them up to the kitchen area of the boat, one at a time. Jackie first. This is where De Leon had Jackie sign over power of attorney to him, forcing her signature and her thumbprint onto the document. What he didn't know at the time, and in an effort to send a message to anyone who would ever see this paper with her signature on it, she left the S off of her last name. De Leon would later add the S on himself, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway. He was never going to be able to exercise his power of attorney over the couple's affairs. He wouldn't get that far. Tom was brought up next to sign and provide his thumbprint for the document. When all of this was done, the trio began looking for the spare anchor, and De Leon started duct taping the couple together. JFK returned with the anchor and chain. Tom, knowing in his heart and in his mind that he and Jackie were going to their deaths, he made one final attempt to save himself and his wife. While De Leon was distracted applying duct tape to the couple, Tom manages to kick him square in his little man junk, causing De Leon to double over in pain. I can only imagine. I don't know what it feels like to take a direct kick to your bits, but 
I've heard it's quite unpleasant. JFK again sucker punches Tom in the face and he's pretty much incapacitated at this point. The three quickly attach the anchor to the couple, move them over to the edge of the yacht, and as De Leon toss the anchor into the water, the chain quickly following behind, JFK pushed Tom and Jackie overboard into the Pacific Ocean, dragged down by that falling anchor. The couple were never recovered. Everyone involved in the cold-blooded murder of Tom and Jackie Hawks, De Leon, JFK, McChain, and De Leon's wife, Jennifer, were all arrested and charged with murder. Let's talk about this Jennifer for a moment. She played a role in this whole scheme, remember? She went along with her husband. She was the dutiful pregnant wife with the cute little toddler. She was the prop that De Leon used to win the trust of the couple. Having a direct hand in the killing of Tom and Jackie, she did not. But you know how the law goes, as it is written, Jennifer was just as culpable if she had committed the crime herself. Just having knowledge of the plan, going along with it, assisting in the preparation, continuing to be a part of it after the fact. All of these circumstances make her eligible for first-degree murder charges along with the others. Prosecutors offered her a deal. Admit to her role, testify against her husband, and she would get immunity from prosecution. Can you believe that? Immunity. And this girl, so dumb, 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 turned it down. She refused to testify against her husband and went to trial. I still can't believe it, but I am so glad she didn't take the deal. She went to trial, and on November 17, 2006, after only four hours of deliberation, a very smart jury found this very dumb woman guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. A month later, she was sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. And do you guys have any idea where she is at today? If you guessed that she's roomies with bad dog owner Marjorie Noller from episode 9 and bad sister Gina Hahn from episode 10, then you would be correct. Jennifer DeLeon, now Jennifer Henderson after divorcing DeLeon, is currently housed at our favorite ladies' prison ever, Central California's Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. Yay! I'm pretty sure they're not having a good time together. And, well, all I have to say to that is, bye, girl. Remember Mr. J.P. Jarvie we talked about earlier? The man who was robbed and brutally murdered and left to bleed to death in Mexico? Well, guess what? McChain implicated De Leon in that killing as well, as a part of his full confession. 
While De Leon was in Seal Beach Jail, he bragged to Machain about killing him in Mexico by slitting his throat. So, while awaiting trial, De Leon was further charged with J.P.'s murder, along with his cousin who accompanied him that day. But wait, this gets even better. De Leon racked up more charges. Solicitation to commit murder. When he tried to hire someone to kill his father and his cousin, who were going to be important witnesses in the case against De Leon in both the Jarvie murder case and the Hawks murder case. In an effort to save time, prosecutors decided to roll all three murders into one trial. Leading up to trial, De Leon had vehemently denied all the charges or any involvement in any of the murders. But once the trial began on September 22, 2008, his attorney admitted his client had in fact committed all three murders, stated that he had taken De Leon's case to trial so he could argue to a jury that De Leon should not be sentenced to death. On October 20, 2008, De Leon was convicted on all three counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances for financial gain and multiple victims. On November 6, 2008, the jury recommended the death penalty. And on April 10, 2010, De Leon was sentenced to death. He now sits on death row at San Quentin Prison. On February 19, 2009, JFK was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. It took his smart jury less than three hours to deliberate to reach the unanimous decision. On May 1, 2009, JFK, too, was sentenced to death, and he, too, sits on death row at San Quentin State Prison. For his part in all of this, Alonzo Machain was able to cut a deal in exchange for his confession and his testimony against De Leon, his wife, and JFK. He pleaded guilty to two counts each of voluntary manslaughter, kidnapping, and robbery. On June 15, 2009, he was sentenced to 20 years and four months. He will likely be up for his first parole hearing in 2023. He's currently neighbors with Henderson, Noller, and Hahn at Valley State Prison in Chowchilla, California. I found McChain's involvement in any of this most perplexing. At the age of 20, it seemed as though the young man was off to a pretty good start in life, headed in the right direction, having obtained work as a jailer at the Seal Beach City Jail. It seemed like he was on his way to a long, promising career with the corrections department. Of course, he must be personally held responsible for his role in the brutal killings of Tom and Jackie. But there is a small part of me that feels a little bit bad for the guy. If he had never crossed paths with De Leon, things would have gone very differently for McChain. I don't know if he was just young and naive or if De Leon was actually that cunning and manipulative, if he was simply lured by the promise of a million dollars, or a combination of the three. 
I am thankful for his cooperation in helping put De Leon, his wife, and JFK away. If it weren't for him, the Hawks family may never have had the answers as to what happened to Tom and Jackie. He's the only one of everyone convicted in this case that's ever going to have a chance at life again. And I can only hope that he doesn't take that for granted. In March of 2009, the friend who knew a friend who'd be willing to help De Leon carry out his murder plot, Myron Gardner, pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact and the murder charges against him were dropped. The moral of his story? If someone asks you to help them carry out a murder and you turn it down, don't go recommending anyone else for the job. You're going to get murder charges brought upon yourself as well. Another dummy in this case, I swear. Skylar DeLeon sure could spot people's weaknesses from a mile away. He found the dumbasses in his wife, Machane, JFK, and Gardner. And sadly, he was able to find the soft spot in the Hawks for their kindness and their compassion and their trust. They paid with their lives. Thank you so much for joining me on this 14th episode of California Dreaming. If you would like to further discuss this case, please feel free to join me on the California Dreaming discussion page on Facebook. We've had a few really great conversations there about the cases we've covered thus far. I do have quite a few things to talk about in regards to the show, the network, other podcasts, and a few things going on in social media, and some thank yous. So, I'd love it if you could stick around till the end and hear me out, but if not, we are done with this week's story, so feel free to skip on through to what's next on your playlist, and I will see you all next week. But for now, I wanted to take the time to thank all of you who commented on my post earlier this week about the review I received about me talking too much about myself at the beginning of the show. This is a storytelling style show, but because I don't have a co-host, I feel as though I'm talking directly to you guys, like you are my friends. Looking at different aspects of a case, discussing the particulars, and maybe even relating to a story with a personal anecdote. Following each episode, we all come to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you share your stories with me. You tell me, oh yeah, that happened to me too, or I remember when that happened, or how you were feeling when the event happened that we talked about. This is the vibe that I'm going for with this. I want you to get to know about California. I want you to get to know about California crime, but I also want you to get to know me, and I want us to get to know each other. I've befriended many of you on Facebook, and some of you have friended me, and I always accept. We follow each other on Twitter and Instagram, both listeners and other show hosts out there. 
my peers in all of this that I admire and love so much. I'm not going to change anything that I do. If anything, I'm striving to improve the show as much as possible with each passing week. It's not all about me anymore. I'm a part of a family of podcasters, and not just my network, but all the hosts out there that I regularly interact with on social media. All of you ladies and gentlemen out there that work your butts off each week or every other week to bring the world free quality content. You all inspire me so much and I continue to want to raise the bar for myself so I might even begin to hold a candle to all of you. So with that being said, if you already haven't left a review for this show on iTunes or Facebook, or if your favorite place to listen to has a rating system, I would greatly appreciate it if you do enjoy the show, that you head on over and give the show a rating and a review. I know it takes a little extra time, but I figure if the people that hate the show have the time to do it, then I'd hope that the people who love the show could somehow find a way to do it as well. My iTunes star rating is kind of slumping because of a couple of recent bad reviews, and that's okay. I understand that this podcast isn't for everyone. Even my husband doesn't listen to it, but he does have to listen to me blab on about the case all week long, so he feels like he's already heard it all. That reminds me, I ought to have him log in to his iTunes and leave me a five-star review. That should help my ratings at least a little bit. So, I don't like to badger you for reviews, but it does give the show a little bit more visibility and at the moment, it might help offset a few of the negative reviews I've gotten in the past few weeks. So, I'm going to badger you today. Early on in the first few episodes of the podcast, I was offering to mail out stickers to those who left reviews, and my offer still stands. So if you leave a review and you haven't received show stickers yet from me, shoot me an email and I'll make sure to get some out to you if you want. California Dreaming is now very proudly a part of the Orbital Jigsaw family of podcasts a network that brings you such fantastic shows as The Concession Stand, where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, or Super Nerds UK, where hosts Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon take an irreverent look at pop culture, or Busted Wide Open, a show where Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous take you on a weekly journey through the hottest news in sports entertainment, or Historium, a podcast devoted to the strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history. Or, Is This Adulting? Where best friends Stephen and Chris break down the stigma on mental illness through the lens of comedy. Or, The Dirty Bits Podcast. Join host Tawny Plattis, who, by the way, broke the internet and crashed our server with her awesomeness this week, Join her for her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out. Or 
410-441-4110, a show where hosts GT, Dak, Kevin, Jack, and Matt fill your ear holes with all things gaming. And of course, Insight. Join hosts Allie and Charlie as they take a new look at true crime, mysteries, and forgotten history. And lastly, one that I've been forgetting to mention in my past shows since I've joined Orbital Jigsaw, and I'm so sorry to the kids of Insight Junior, a podcast that explores mysteries, myths, and legends designed for all ages. If any of these shows sound like they might pique your interest, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on their links. Also, I'd like to announce that the Orbital Jigsaw family of podcasts has also launched its merchandise store. So, if you think you absolutely cannot live without a California Dreaming hoodie, mug, or phone case, then hurry on over to the store. I'll post the link in the show notes and on social media. Everything has the new logo on it, and I'm currently working on getting some new designs up in the store, but I don't know how to design. I'm out there harassing people, begging for help, so if you think you might have a cool idea or something that meshes with the design and colors of the show's cover art, something clever, dreamy, with the West Coast vibe, yet murdery, hit me with it. I need all the help I can get. Sorry, I have no shame. I do need to give a big, huge, huge shout out to Rhett, who helped me with some new ideas and designs for some of the merchandise. He is so sweet and so kind to have reached out to help me. He co-hosts the Brain Trust Bros podcast, along with Jared and Sean. Each week, they talk about life, and everything that entails. They speak to a different guest every week in a one-on-one chat. So give that a listen if that sounds like something that you might be interested in. I also want to take the time to extend my deepest gratitude to those who have become a patron of the show. Stephanie, Eileen, Jen, Mary, and two of my favorite, favorite shows, True Crime Fan Club and Moms and Murder. If you like Hello Friday Dreaming, those are two shows that you must check out because I'm pretty sure you'll like them more. The host of True Crime Fan Club also has another show, We're All Just Pretending, a show that's kind of like Dear Abby but with a twist. And Moms and Murder are two moms who think they're funny hosting a true crime podcast out of the lovely state full of true crimes, Florida. So that would make them the almost most infamous moms in Florida. Give them a listen if you want murder, chatter, and giggles. I also want to tell you guys that I did my first interview ever with Edward, the host of the Unfound podcast. Some of you may have already listened to it, but if you haven't, I'm a little late to the game. It aired over a week ago. His show is an interview-style podcast that speaks to a friend or family member of a person that's gone missing. I've had the wonderful opportunity to meet new people who discovered California Dreaming through his show, 
including a fellow Californian who's actually given me the idea for the next story that I'm going to tell you next week. So thank you so much, Stephanie, for your help, all your information, and giving me inspiration for the next episode. This girl's got her finger on the pulse of California crime. Lastly, I want to say to all of my friends out there, listeners and show hosts alike, I felt like it's been a rough week for some of us, myself included. I started off with the review that made me kind of sad because it wasn't exactly the most constructive thing in the world. And it kind of was more of a personal attack on things that I can't control, like my voice. I read some other negative reviews of other shows that they posted on social media, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's not really about the show when somebody personally attacks you, either in a review or in comments. There's like this band of mean people out there that entertain themselves by putting people down for the hard work they put in to bringing you a free show. They put down your content or your music or your audio quality or your voice or the way you talk or the ads and you're just like, this is free. You don't have to pay for this and you don't have to listen. Not everybody's show is going to appeal to everyone. Sometimes I see scathing reviews on shows that I love and I'm just perplexed like how can you not like this show but like I said some things aren't for everyone. I know my show isn't for everyone too. It's quiet, it can be sad, moody, depressing, violent, intense at times. I'm still learning the ins and outs of doing this kind of work. I'm not a professional at it by any stretch of the word. I did all this on a wing and a prayer, and I'm incredibly lucky that I found a home with Orbital Jigsaw who's been able to step in and help me refine the show so that all of you can have the best possible listening experience. But if you don't like, you don't have to be a meanie and say not nice things on iTunes and Facebook me or anyone for that matter. I know my weaknesses, but if you feel the need to tell me how crappy my show is, that's fine. I will try to learn and grow from it. However, I'd rather you just move along and find another show to listen to that's more to your liking. There is something out there for everyone, and it's all free. And with that, dreamers, if you've made it this far, then you're likely a non-hater. And until next time, sweet dreams.